Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a chaplain, and as a professor, and he has a keen interest in helping Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's title is Why Lockdowns Are Not Pro-Life. Recently, two Christian MPPs in Ontario were invited onto a podcast and claimed that the Sixth Commandment necessitated lockdowns, vax mandates, and compliance to public health regulations. So today, we're going to dissect and respond to their arguments on this podcast. And since their views are commonly held among many Christians across North America, this is going to be very helpful for you uh, to process these things. So Aaron, can you get us started today and tell us a little bit more? Happy to. I mean, I am happy to on a certain level, but on another level, I'm I'm a little weary on a certain level of kind of going back over the same arguments. You know, we've been talking about lockdowns, vax mandates, the supremacy of Christ over his church for a long time now. Obviously, people hold different views on these subjects, but um, there are implications to our views for 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 all of life. So, it's probably the kind of thing we're going to have to touch down on time and time again. So as you know, in Ontario, we're coming up to an election and in March on a podcast called Real Talk, which I do appreciate. I've been on their show. I can't remember if I've been on it once or twice, but they're good guys analyzing cultural issues from a reform perspective here in Ontario. They invited on two Christian MPPs, which are part of the new, um, part of the uh, PC government and will be running for re-election as I understand it. Uh, two Christian guys, Will Bauma and Sam Oosterhoff. I don't know these guys personally. I know of them. I'm thankful for Christians that are in political office, but nevertheless, they were invited onto the show. And basically, I would just say as a summary, we're championing the government narrative, the necessity for lockdowns and vax mandates and this sort of thing. And also trying to build a uh, biblical case for it by appealing to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and also to the Heidelberg Catechism, which speaks at one part of the uh, responsibility we have not to to endanger life. So that's kind of what they were um, dealing with. Now, I could just give a little summary, if you want, yeah. of, the, um, of the podcast as I, I heard it. I know you've listened to uh, most of it as well. So as I was listening to these two gentlemen, uh, essentially they were focusing in on the following things, that government authority must be obeyed. So we would actually agree with that, but we would we would not see that as being an absolute statement. I don't think they would either. It's not an absolute statement. I think I'm going to argue that the government has actually usurped much of God's authority and actually violated some clear teachings in God's word in their response to this. But that was one of their points. They also argued that it's kind of like a pro-life issue. Obviously, the pro-life issues a pretty hot topic right now because of the leak in the United States that the Supreme Court is mulling over a, a, a possible response to Roe v. Wade, which would make, uh, which would be in favor of the the pro life movement. We are pro lifers. We're we're yep. hardline pro lifers. We're anti abortion. So we would agree with them on that. But I think there's a, an an error being made when Bauman and Oosterhof utilize the sixth commandment as a 
foundational text to, uh, I'm not going to say coerce, but to encourage us to follow government lockdown, vax mandates, this sorts of this sort of thing. I think there's an error there. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bauma also made a comment that he he likes to boil it all down to the most fundamental thing, and he he's arguing that it's not a a salvation issue, that it won't matter in in the big picture. Uh, I'll just say right off the top, the big problem I have with that, then why does it matter for us to comply? If it doesn't matter either way, whether I obey or disobey, why do I have $400,000 of fines and a potential four-year prison sentence uh, staring me down, staring at me? If it doesn't really matter uh, in the big picture anyway, I think it very much matters. I think the precedents that we've the precedent that we've set through our compliance or lack of compliance has huge implications for future decisions and even for the mission of the church in Ontario and Canada and beyond. He also mentions that life's more important than liberty. He, he comments rightly that liberty can be returned and life can't be, although I don't think it needs to be an either or. Mm-hmm. I think it can be a both end. I think there can have been a balance, more balanced approach where certain fundamental liberties are God-given liberties that the government doesn't have the right to give or take could be uh, acknowledged. And at the same time, we could have put some measures in place that were more reasonable and less extreme Mm -hmm. that would have also protected the most vulnerable. Um, There's a reference to data. I do appreciate data, but I also know that that the source of data, um, people have different opinions on, on how to interpret data. And also the data does change depending on who's, working on it Mm -hmm. and who's who's writing it for example he talks about more deaths in michigan compared to ontario i do believe that's a a true statement but at the same time uh i have data data that i could present and one of the pieces of data that i could present is that the death rate in canada this is the most fundamental way of looking at this has not increased any more than we would normally expect in fact i'll be very clear about it in 2022, so far, the death rate is 7.89, uh, four per thousand. That's an increase of 0.57%. In uh, 2021, it increased over the previous year by 0.59, the previous year by 0.58, the previous year by 0.60, and so forth. So th- if you actually want to look at the data, mm-hmm. the, the most pure data is how many people, what percentage of people out of a thousand die in Canada every year. Right now, 7.89. Last year, 7.84. You're like, well, that's an increase. But if you follow it back to the 70s, almost every year is a 0.15% increase. So the bottom line is this. There is no pandemic that has taken place in Ontario or Canada that has killed an unusually high number of people. That's an absolute falsehood. And people need to be held to account for that. To say that, well, 12,000 people died over two years out of a population of 14.5 million people, Mm -hmm. that's not a pandemic. That's not a pandemic. The death rate, I'll say it again, you look at the raw data, the the most raw data, how many people die every year in Canada. The same amount died this year over last, the year before, the year before, the year before, with a slight increase because of an aging population 
year over year over year of about 0.15%. That's a fact. That's not disputable. We have hard facts on that. There, there is a lot of question marks as to how many of those 12,000 people actually died from COVID or with COVID mm -hmm. or whether they were always being honest. Now, you don't have data on this, but I have a very good friend who was in a very high executive role in the local hospital here in Windsor that told me straight up, these hot, some of these hospitals are fudging numbers. They're lying. They're not telling the truth. That's going to affect the data. I trust this person. We know that the hospital staff have come out and said we're all vaccinated. I personally know people that are working in hospitals that aren't vaccinated have been, and have been encouraged to sign non-disclosure agreements so that the public doesn't know. I'm a man of God. I'd put my hand on the Bible and swear that that's mm -hmm. true. So we have to be careful how we use data, but I'm less concerned about the data and the number of deaths. And I'm more concerned about the principles and what we've permitted to take place in our, in our culture. But just to kind of circle back around, I want to be respectful of the data within limits, but I don't trust the data completely mm -hmm. because it, it is open to interpretation. So I don't think it's fair to say that if you're a person of truth, you necessarily have to get on a government website and trust whatever the data is there. There is some interpretive uh, aspects to that. They also talk about the government bearing the sword. And uh, for them, that means that the government is allowed to put laws in place to protect life. I find that a little bit questionable. I'll talk about that in a bit. They do acknowledge the course of nature of mandates, but they don't, they're not, I didn't hear anything within there that um, suggests that they were prepared to apologize for that or actually speak out against it. Mm. It seemed to me that Mr. Baumel was a little bit more favorable than Mr. Oosterhoff. So in summary, and this is just a summary, we're going to break this down. This is probably going to be a long podcast. The idea that I got out of this podcast is that if you care for truth, and they've defined truth fundamentally as data mm -hmm. with some biblical references, then you should care for life, which they would define as the protocols, and you should therefore comply. And then there's sort of a sidebar comment about trusting in the sovereignty of God, which, by the way, cuts both ways. If you trust in the sovereignty of God and comply, if or, or if you're complying because you're trusting in the sovereignty of God, a person who's not complying can also say, yeah, I'm equally trusting in the sovereignty of God. I'm not really concerned about dying, and I want to get on with life. So that's just kind of a summary of, of what I heard from the podcast. Gotcha. Okay. So, and yeah, that's, that's, I think a very good, um, captures many of the points. We'll try to make sure we link to the podcast in our comments sure. so you can go back and check it out yourself. But Aaron, can you just summarize then your concerns about their defense of lockdowns and mandates? Well, I have several and I, I don't have time to nitpick every single detail, but I think I want to start with dissecting this argument that says, if you're pro-life, if you're a pro-life Christian, and you read the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. Or if you read the Heidelberg Catechism, which says, um, I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger uh, myself or others, then you must by necessity comply with public health protocols that are designed to extend life, to protect life. So let's just kind of analyze that a little bit. So first of all, the sixth commandment, is a prohibition against the unlawful taking of human life. So if you're in war, you're a just war theorist and someone's shooting at you or they're killing other people and you take that person's life, that's not considered murder, it's justifiable killing. And I know there's Christians that disagree with that and they're more passive in, 
in in their theological approach to warfare. But I, I am a just war theorist. I think there's times when it's necessary to go to war and take up arms and take life in order to protect life. So the sixth commandment, though, isn't a broad um, uh, prohibition against living in the process of living, accidentally killing someone on the highway or living in the process of living unknown, unknowingly to you, unknown to you, having a virus that's passed to someone else that kills them. That's not what the sixth commandment's about. That's not the intention of the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is a prohibition against the unlawful taking of human life. It's not a command that is to be interpreted as, well, you should stay home just in case, unknown to you, you have a virus Mm -hmm. that you may pass on to someone else. And that person may be among a fraction of a percentage of the population that's especially susceptible to it, and you might kill them. And if you do that, then you're breaking the sixth commandment by murdering someone. I think, frankly, with respect, that's a ridiculous and absurd argument. So to say to someone, you ha- you're a healthy person, you have no symptoms, we want you to stay home and mask up just in case you happen to be contagious with the disease that a fraction of the population will die from that, that, that sense of that, that argument can be applied to everything. These men need to be careful by the way, because I'm sensing that this is the exact same argument that's going to be applied to climate change. Mm-hmm. So if I come to Mr. Baum or Mr. Oosterhoff and I say, I'm a climate change expert, um, we get a major issue. CO2 emissions are through the roof. I want you and your government to stand with us. We're the scientific, you know, we're the science experts. You're the government. You have a responsibility to uh, protect life. So you need to go with us on on climate lockdowns. What What is your pushback to that going to be? What's your pushback to that going to be? Um, what about if uh, it's applied to population control issues, these sorts of things? Mm-hmm. So it, that's not the intention of the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment is don't take a knife, a gun, or a sword and go and kill people. Mm-hmm. That's the Sixth Commandment. Now, I will say that, you know, in keeping with the Heidelberg Catechism, which I, I, you know, for the most part agree with, yeah, we shouldn't recklessly endanger life. But recklessly endangering life is perhaps, for example, knowing that you had Ebola and going around and coughing in people's Mm -hmm. faces or driving 200 kilometers an hour through a 50 kilometer an hour road or um, leaving knives or guns on the table when you have infants in the house or not having a rail on your balcony just like an Old Testament, the ox falling into the pit or goring someone. The That idea of being willfully irresponsible and having in your possession something that you know is deadly, something that you know is dangerous, and just using it irresponsibly and therefore bringing about death is not the same situation as you living your life as a healthy person with no symptoms and lo and behold, finding out, unbeknownst to you, that you were a carrier of a particular disease that, you know, has, has negatively affected a lot of people. The, if we, if we take it back to a a most basic principle in the scriptures, the scriptures is very clear in the Levitical law that if someone is sick and it's a contagious disease, you quarantine them period, period. We don't need to go beyond the Bible. That's great advice. It makes sense. That's how we've always functioned in human history with a few exceptions. I am in favor of quarantining the sick. The problem I have is mass lockdowns for entire populations without due regard for all the other 
collateral consequences as a result of those lockdowns. Now, if I wanted to uh, push back a little harder, I could say, okay, so if you're arguing that the sixth commandment requires that I stay home to stay safe, to keep you safe, just in case I happen to have a disease that I don't know about, which I may pass on to you. Well, then I could also say, well, how about your violation of the fourth commandment, which is to remember the Sabbath and work six days. Your government uh, created the circumstances whereby people were off work for months and months and months on end. Some of them, like some dear brothers and sisters in our church who, because of their conscience, Romans 14, 23, chose not to be vaccinated, they're out of work permanently. They've lost $100,000, a year jobs. So I could push back and say, actually, lockdowns violate the fourth commandment. I could push back if I wanted to, and I could maybe uh, say that you violated the, the fifth commandment through your government policies. How would I, well, that commandment's about honoring your parents. Your government was presiding over a health administration that was offering ice cream cones to 12-year-olds to get vaccinated in Toronto and 2,500 of them showed up and got vaccinated. And there's a lot of reports out there saying that's false. No, but in the process of saying they're false, they actually proved they're true. Mm -hmm. They said, yeah, but no, we weren't coercing them. We actually had a good conversation with them and made sure they were fully informed. Okay, they're still 12. You were still offering them ice cream cones. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we never did it without the parent present. Look, you're quoting the fact that in, in, in law, a 12-year-old can consent to a vaccine without parental consent, a child. Mm -hmm. Would Mr. Bouma or Bauma or Mr. Oosterhoff feel comfortable if their 12-year-old jumped on their bike and rode downtown to a vaccine clinic in exchange for an ice cream cone without parental consent? I doubt it. But their government was presiding over a system there was permitting stuff like that. I could say you violated the eighth commandment, which commands us not to steal. And yet you essentially stole from people. How did you steal? How did your government steal from people? You permitted big box stores to have 100% of a lion's share of the business and you closed down all the small businesses. Why? What's the science behind that? Mm -hmm. What's the life-giving principle behind that to say that the big box corporations uh, can have as many people in them as they want, sell whatever they want, have a hundred percent lion's share of the the market, and small businesses are closed. What about the ninth commandment? Now I know I'm not suggesting that these individuals are part of this, but the ninth commandment speaks out against perjuring oneself, lying essentially, bearing false witness. And I mentioned earlier that the the health the health officials in our province have been caught in lies, or at least through my sources within the hospital structures, people that I trust, people that I would trust with my life, they've told me some of the shenanigans that have taken place. Do I have data for that? No, because the government's the one that decides what data gets released and what data doesn't get released. These are anecdotal comments, but I believe them to be true. So there, I could also say you violated Romans 14, 23 by, by going along with forced vac vaccine mandates. And I know in the, in the interview, there was a comment about, no, we didn't, we didn't force all these uh, um, vax mandates. They were just for the LTC. Come on, you're playing games. You're presiding over a province mm -hmm. where you've created the atmosphere, the culture, the climate, and you've permitted businesses and other organizations to impose vaccine mandates on people in order to continue their employment. And you've said nothing. You're complicit. You're responsible for that. In practice, it is it is it is your in in principle, it's essentially your decision. So, uh, if 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 I, for example, have violated uh, the sixth commandment, then I could say the government 
and Christians who have complied have violated the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and maybe even been complicit in the ninth, and then also violated the principles of Romans 14.23 by not permitting people on disputable issues to make choices without being coerced and manipulated and fined into submission. So nobody, nobody, I would also say this, Chris, nobody has been forced to not stay home. They've had the option. Nobody's saying you can't stay home. You have to get to work. If someone wants to wear a mask, nobody's saying you can't wear a mask. Nobody's saying you can't stay home if you want. No one says you can't stay home from church. If you want to do those things, do those things. I don't personally think they're good ideas, but we, we, we've created a culture where people have the options to protect, to lock down, to hide, to run away. But that same, those same options haven't been offered to those who disagree fundamentally with lockdowns, who have a very different opinion on how dangerous this virus has been for the majority of us. I'll go on record and saying I've had COVID and didn't even know it. And I have huge immunity in my system as a result of a test I did. There's all kinds of people like that. Mm -hmm. So could the virus kill me? Yes. So could a gunshot. So could a car accident. But I'm not living my life in fear. But the government would want a person like me to potentially lose their job, to be fined all kinds of dollars, to uh, potentially do jail time because I'm supposedly a risk to the public. And and I just think this is, this is uh, nonsense. So Mm -hmm. it's unprecedented in scripture, in theology, and in most of human history for healthy people. This is key to be locked down. And shall I say selectively as well? What do I mean by that? Well, it's not even lockdowns for everybody. It's just lockdowns for the quote unquote Mm non-essential. So here are two Christian men essentially implying that they're okay with churches being locked down to as low as five people. But again, if, if we're following the epidemiology and, and the sixth commandment is the overriding principle here, then why didn't you lock down weed store owners? Why didn't you lock down LCBOs? Why didn't you lock down literally everything and just have the government deliver our groceries or something like that? No, you were selective. Mm-hmm. You, you, you looked at the situation, you assumed that, the churches wouldn't care that much or they're more non-essential than the weed store. And you, you selectively lock down the population. So if, you know, I think most people would understand that the 10 commandments are pretty absolute. They don't just apply to some and not to others. So if this, if you're going to argue the sixth commandment is really about murdering people by not staying, not staying home and staying safe and wearing your mask, then you should apply it to everybody because the principle applies to everybody. So I would say I have, I have no, no responsibility. I'll use stronger language, zero responsibility to stay home, to stop working or to stop worshiping because there's a bad virus going around. And these men were part of a government that declared the church non-essential. The LCBO stores were allowed to stay open and they have done very little to speak out against the tyranny of the current state and the breach of authority that um, I, I see the, the, the Ontario government and many other, many other governments and many other jurisdictions participating in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So overwhelmingly, it would seem, you know, we've talked about lockdowns on the show before. We believe lockdowns overwhelmingly are a very, very bad thing. Um, they seem to think over, overwhelmingly they're 
a very good thing. Yeah, they might say not perfect, but overwhelmingly a good thing. They seem very convinced that the consequences of not doing the lockdown would be very severe, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's all speculation. I mean, the one fellow mentions that there's 12,000 deaths over two years in a province of over 14 million. So I don't know if that's 6,000 per year or whatnot, but 12,000 over two years in a population of 14.5 million. And he, he, he made a comment to the effect that he's, you know, reasonably sure that, or at least could speculate that maybe up to 100,000, which was the number that was originally predicted, I believe, could have, lives could have been lost. Um, so first of all, I want to be clear. I, I am in favor of protocols. I am in favor of health protocols. You know, I, I don't, I don't think it's acceptable for someone who's sick with a contagious disease to be wandering around in public coughing in people's faces. If I saw someone with a stomach, even the stomach flu in church, I or someone would probably say, bud, like, what are you doing? You're throwing up here in the hallway and you're at church. Like, what are you thinking? You're not going to let a family drop their kid off at our nursery at church who has foot and mouth disease. And if they do, they, they need to take them home and deal with this. So I have no problem with that. I'm a big fan of targeted protection plans. We should have targeted the LTCs. That's where most of the deaths took place. They're vulnerable people. They're older people. They're on the verge of dying. Of course, we want to protect them. This is not the issue. The problem is when you get 25, 35-year-old people who have lost their jobs, who some of whom, by the way, because of coercion, let's just, let's just say this. I don't say this too often. Some of whom have had severe reactions to vaccines, which are, for most people, seem to be, be fine, but for some people have had some pretty catastrophic reactions. We have a family member who was jabbed twice and died, I think, directly from it. There's all sorts of question marks out there. We're administering a vaccine on, on large parts of the population that aren't typically vulnerable to COVID, but they're, they seem to have some adverse effects to, to, the, um, to the vaccination. I don't want to tell too many stories like tales out of school to guard people's privacy, but I know people that have been devastated by the vaccine. Is it a minority? Yes, it's a very small minority from what I've observed, but it, it primarily tends to negatively affect populations that probably don't need an immediate vaccine, given the statistics and given what we've seen. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But here's where I fundamentally disagree with them. They seem to be convinced that the consequences of, of not doing what they did would be severe. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. I think this pandemic is exaggerated. And actually, I think if people stepped away from the media and from the data, they would agree, they would see the same thing. I, I would like to ask these two MPPs, how many people do you personally know that have succumbed to COVID-19 out of all the people that you know? How many? And I bet it would be a very, very small number. Again, if we're going to just use data, Chris, mm -hmm. okay, so I'm a pastor, so I care about every single soul. But if we're going to use data and we're going to say, oh, 12,000 deaths out of 14.5 million over two years. Right. So six, maybe around 6,000, one year, 6,000 X. That's a statistically hardly even a blip. And some will be offended by that. But I'm just speaking in terms of the data. There are tens of thousands of people that die. I, th I think I should have wrote this down. I think it's around 100,000 or 113,000 people that die every year in Ontario under normal circumstances, quote unquote, normal circumstances. But, um, you know, they, they would have us think that this pandemic, that the, the bodies are somehow being stacked up in the streets. How many funerals 
How many more funerals have pastors done over the past couple of years than normal? Well, I can tell you in our situation, we do about one funeral a year. And what have we done over the last few years? One funeral a year. I did one funeral in 2022. I did one in 2021. And I did one in 2020. Mm-hmm. I think you might have done a couple for people that were uh, associated with our church as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're a large church. Uh, we should be bearing based upon our Sunday service numbers around 11 somewhere between 11 and 12 people per year. And during a pandemic, we're, be- we're bearing one per year. Mm-hmm. So well, this kind well of puts not things- observing without outing ourselves, but pretty obvious while not observing the required protocols. Exactly. Giving people latitude. If you want to do this, you would, but we're not enforcing all that stuff. Mm-hmm. At the beginning, we were more, we were more um, willing to comply and work with them because we thought they actually wanted to work with us. And then we discovered they didn't. So, These are the facts. You can add that to your data dump. I I would also say, um, are the ICUs unusually full? No, no, they're not. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge that lie too. They're not unusually full. I know people, again, I don't want to give them away. They work in local hospitals. They send me the information. Have the ICUs been full in the winter? Yeah. And they were before the pandemic in the city of Windsor. I also had a fellow that was working in close proximity to the, um, the ICU that was telling me that he asked one of the physicians, why are the ICUs often overloaded because of delayed surgeries was one of the responses. So we're, we're kind of doing that kind of uh, exploration and detective work behind the scene because we don't, we don't trust the government narrative. We think there, we understand human nature. We think there's, there's a real issue. There's some reasonable responses that have been, can put, be put in place, but this idea of going as Mr. Bauma seemed to suggest, being in favor of vax mandates, even though such a relatively small number of people are affected by COVID-19 in a deadly way compared to other diseases and whatnot that sweep through, through, through our our country is, um, is, is, is hard to take. I was talking to a funeral director when they were, had the um, uh, wagons or the trailers, whatever they were, uh, there last year out of the Windsor hospital and they were stacking up the corpses, you know, there was, they made it sound like they couldn't even, you know, keep up. The funeral director said to me, Hey, between you and I, Aaron, it's because we have to go through so many protocols as funeral directors to even get people into funeral homes to arrange for the funerals. The backup is not that we have an unusual number of deaths. The backup that the protocols we have to live by are unusually difficult and therefore we can't process people as quick. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a very different narrative mm-hmm. than what you hear in in the Windsor Star. So again, I, I don't I don't actually care that much about the data. And the reason I don't care about the data is because I think the data as the the one podcast host mentioned can kind of be go either way. Mm-hmm. But if we do want to deal with data, again, I would say that look at this the stats in Canada for overall death rate, you're seeing the same gradual increase year over year. We have not seen a spike in deaths in Canada. That's just a falsehood. It's false. So, but let's suppose, and, and by the way, he, the, the, the one MP, uh, Mr. Usterhoff, is correct. Suicides have dropped, but mental health is way up. It's the suicide helplines. I, I, I read 
uh, are up as much as 200% in terms of phone calls. Opioid deaths are up. But even, even with, even without, even if we can't agree on the degree to which this is a pandemic of, you know, biblical proportions that requires lockdowns, vax mandates, um, we should at least agree that there are more considerations to be made than just the data surrounding deaths. Mm -hmm. If a Christian person says, you know, when we talks about truth, that the fundamental issue here is when we look at the data, there's lots of deaths. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think there's as many deaths as you're saying there are. Okay. Let's say we go back and forth. You bring your data. I bring my data. You bring your data. I bring my data. The error in that, that debate, is that we're not just physical bi biotic beings. And as mm -hmm. Christians, we should know that mm -hmm. well. And the, the implications of these decisions upon other spheres and areas of life does need to be considered. Mm -hmm. This this is an eternal issue. I know of an individual that actually left the Christian faith over this. And I know many others that as a result of waving the flag very high that Christ is supreme over culture. Christ is supreme over our decisions. We honor conscience. We, you know, we um, value bodily autonomy in terms of personal medical choices. That's brought people in. And we've seen all kinds of conversions in churches like ours because of that. So it's not just, it's not just about you bring your data about deaths and I'll bring my data and my anecdotal evidence about deaths. And we'll, whoever has the most data on their favor, we're going to, you know, go for lockdowns or, or, or say lockdowns are bad. We have to look at the holistic consequences of lockdowns, vax mandates, government overreach, suspended uh, charter rights on the population. Mm -hmm. Two comments I want to make. Um, one in the podcast, they mentioned that Dr. Henry or uh, Dr. Williams rather in Ontario, the chief medical officer, the former chief medical officer, and they were saying Dr. Bonnie Henry, which I believe is out in British Columbia as the medical chief medical officer. They both said they are people of faith, uh, Christians, Dr. Williams being maybe a Presbyterian that goes to church faithfully prior to the pandemic. What I found so interesting about that is that one, it seems it, based on that, then that, you know, we've thought often, oh, if you could just get Christians into these positions of uh, power to make these decisions, it would go better. But these are obviously Christians not carrying a biblical worldview about these things. But then the second comment, when we talk about lockdowns, what I found very fascinating through this whole process was that um, historically speaking, lockdowns were never the solution for pandemics. They were never even recommended. David Redmond, there's a great interview where he, he explains Alberta had this emergency preparedness plan for pandemics that they literally scrapped and adopted different plans. And so you think, even if you are going with the notion that this is of pandemic proportions, that there will be hundreds of thousands of death, the tools that they used are novel tools to dealing with it. And so there's just so much, yeah, so much that goes into that, obviously. Well, there's also many Christian doctors that aren't in high offices that agree or that disagree with public health protocols. I mean, pub, I, don't, I don't know how anyone could actually conclude that public health protocols are actual epidemiological, like pure epidemiological responses to a disease. There's always the human factor in there. There's always the political factor there. I mean, if you're, if you're the chief health officer of Ontario and your sole goal is to preserve lives, you just lock everybody down forever. You, you, mm -hmm. don't, you don't ever have to be criticized. 
in terms of deaths anyway. Everyone, so I'm coming at this from the perspective of a pastor. I want my church open. I want to be left alone by the government. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're growing by leaps and bounds. Our people are for the most part healthy. We've had very little COVID impact. There's been some, but very little COVID impact. The spiritual benefits of that are huge. So I have a vested interest. I'm coming at it from a certain bias. I'm a pastor. I want the government to get out of my church and leave me alone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Likewise, these two men that are doing this podcast need to defend their government because they need to get reelected. Now, do they actually believe this stuff? I think they do. I'm not going to question their faith, but the reality is we all come at it from a bias and from a certain vantage point. And if you're a health practitioner and you're in government, we've seen, I think it was the new public health director of uh, Haldeman yep. that was basically, they were bringing a new guy in and he wasn't super in favor of a lot of this stuff, but they basically said, you better be or you're fired. So there's coercion, there's your paycheck. Everybody's thinking about their paycheck, even if it's in the deep, dark recesses of your mind. You're going to be thinking about your business, your own personal interests. So for every Christian MD that they could put up front and say, well, this Christ this MD who's also a Christian thinks this, I could bring them another MD who's also a Christian that would, that would question it. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful not just to appeal to human authorities. And I want to kind of ground this in, you know, logic and common sense and a little bit in the data and the science, but most I want to ground it in a, a proper understanding of a Christian worldview and what this, how the scriptures give us direction in this regard. Mm -hmm. Okay. One other thing they can, they implied that the state has a vested claim in preserving life and so was justified to limit churches. Like, you know, they bring up the fire cart code argument and I want to spend some time on this one because mm -hmm. it comes up a lot, but sure. speak to that. Sure. Well, we maintain that the state has no authority to regulate Christian worship. And what I mean by that is not the form of Christian worship, nor the numbers. And people, when I say that, they, especially the numbers part, they say, well, what about the fire code? So let's just put this, hopefully put this fire code argument to rest. Let's just really think about this. Is Are we comparing apples to apples? When we say, well, on one hand, the, the the state says, based upon your building size, you can put X number of people in. And if you don't, it's a fire um, mm -hmm. hazard, I guess. People might not be able to get out in time. So if you, Aaron Rock, have submitted to the fire code, then why won't you submit to limitations on your attendance for Christian worship? And because we have... In both of those scenarios, the fire code and the government limitations, we have questions around the issue of capacity mm -hmm. and government authority. People are like, well, there, we, we got you now. Mm -hmm. You've submitted to the fire code in terms of your numbers allowed within a building. And so you should submit to this. And I, I would submit back that that's, that is, that's not apples to apples. That, 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 that's an inappropriate analogy. So let's just analyze this a little bit. So what, what actually is the fire code? Um, what the fire code does is, and my dad is a retired firefighter, so I have respect for fire codes and making sure there's proper exit mm -hmm. plans and whatnot for churches and we have fire extinguishers up and all that sort of thing. What the fire code, if you think about it, is, is it's simply putting a number on the space that you have to use, that you've chosen to use as a church on a Sunday morning or whatever it might be for worship. So 
let me let me maybe use a different analogy in order to help people understand this. If I choose as an individual to go out and buy a five-seater car, a car that seats five people, and I'm whizzing down the 401 highway here in Ontario and a police officer sees me goes by and he, he pulls me over and I got like 18 people stacked like cordwood in the car. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is not safe. You you decided to buy a five-seater car. You're only therefore allowed to have five people in the car. And I were to respond, well, you can't, you can't restrict me. He, he could logically say, look, I'm not restricting you. If you want to drive with 18 people, buy an 18 passenger car, buy a minibus. You can drive around with 30 people, buy a full-size school bus. You can take rent two buses, rent three buses. So I can drive anywhere I want with, as long as I have purchased the proper sized vehicle. That's not what's going on with, with lockdowns. Lockdowns have been so ridiculous. Whether you whether you can seat fifty or five thousand at one point in Ontario, you were allowed five people in your church. Mm-hmm. So with fire codes, I'm it doesn't restrict my if I take that car analogy and apply it to churches and I say we we can fit eight hundred and ten people per service in our sanctuary, which we can. So if I want to fit a thousand per service, it's completely on me. It's not the government's responsibility to build me a bigger building Mm -hmm. and there's no restrictions. I can rent a bigger space or I can just expand my building. Mm -hmm. So when I submit to fire codes, I'm not submitting to some sort of uh, external codal requirement that isn't somehow reflective of the reality of the building that I built. They're just quantifying what I purchased. If I build a church for 100 people, I can put 100 people in it. If I drive a car with five seats, I can put five people in it. The government says, we don't want you going over that. But if you want to go over it, build a bigger building, buy a bigger car. That's not what's going on in this regard. In other words, there's there's nothing in the fire code that restricts me from ministering to more people. Let me say that again. There's nothing in the fire code that restricts me from ministering to more people. I just go and get a different tool, a different building, a different bus, a different car. Nothing in the fire code hinders Mm -hmm. baptisms, the Lord's Supper, the number of people I want to minister to in a given week, my ability to offer a holy kiss or a holy handshake. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in the fire code that hinders the ministry of the gospel. Lockdowns do. Mm -hmm. I could go out and rent a stadium and I could still only have five people in it at one point in time Mm -hmm. or 30%. And then within Christian worship, some people say, well, they're not regulating the message. Well, the message isn't just the words coming out of my mouth as I'm preaching a biblical text. The message is also my obedience to celebrate the sacraments, to celebrate the ordinances, Mm -hmm. to uh, counsel, to lay hands on, to be with the sick. All of those things were put on hold, even in some churches because of their interpretation and because of the enforcement of some local health units, not being allowed to sing, mm-hmm. having marriages it was, suspended. It was absolutely forbidden to sing in for a period of time. Unit. Yep. Okay. I don't remember us abiding by that in our, uh, anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, by the way, um, we were on record as pushing back against a lot of these mandates. But in all honesty, sometimes we just lost tracks. They were changing so fast. Mm-hmm. You know, like you don't know from one day to the next what's legal, what's illegal. So the fire code argument, I would just say, is is a pretty poor argument because again, fire codes do not in any way, shape, or form affect my willingness to um, or my ability to minister to people, unless for some reason I 
think that I can only do ministry in my church building, and this is forever the building that God has given to us, which I don't think, and I don't think any thinking Christian would really uh, argue that way. So the big problem is is in a lot of this is the loss of um, the lack of balance. Um, we, uh, you know, again at points in time, we we run a couple services so we can minister to fifteen, sixteen hundred people a week, but to have these carte blanche rules that didn't take into consideration the cost to souls, the cost to wallets, the cost to the economy, the cost to delayed surgeries, the cost to, to marriages, to despair. I can speak as a pastor. We don't keep data. I don't keep a little data computer around that, that, that monitors how depressed people are, but I can speak as a, a vocational pastor that there was a lot of devastating emotional, social, and economic consequences mm-hmm. to um, our our church. So our church, out of our ties and offerings, we had to actually support some people's salaries for periods of time, help fund them because of the treatment that they received from their their employers. And this is on the provincial government. It's their mm-hmm. fault because of the mandates they put in place and then what they permitted to take place in workforces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully that puts that one to rest. If, if you, as a, as a s- interesting side note, if you actually look at the fire code, the number of people you can have in a space is actually uncomfortable most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> so you would, it doesn't restrict ministry. So we have a gym in our church and, and it's, and years ago we, we ran the numbers on it. And I think if I remember correctly, the, the analogy still works, even if my numbers are off, but we could, they told us we could seat 350. Mm-hmm. I knew we could only seat 300. Mm-hmm. And they said for standing room, we could put like 700 and something in there. I'm like, yeah, it's no nuts. way. Like you'd have nuts. one person standing almost per square foot or something like there, a couple square feet. So yeah, the fire codes, the fire code argument really needs to be put to rest. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about the comparison to abortion? You know, people have said you're pro-life, you fight against abortion. Why would you not fight against the potential of people dying from COVID as a result of your actions? So I'll be honest with you in my flesh, I find that one really irritating to compare the slaughter of a, a little baby inside of its mother's womb to not abiding by provincial health protocols, I think is borderline disgusting but let's try to just objectify it. So when a doctor takes his scissors, his needles, his ropes, whatever he uses to slaughter a child in their mother's womb, the statistical results are 100%. When a child, when a physician goes in to to kill a child, that child will die. Now, when I say 100%, yes, I know there's some crazy stories out there of some child that was pulled out, left on the table, and somehow lived. But for all intents and purposes, abortion is 100% fatal. It's 100% fatal. COVID is actually rarely fa- fatal. It's rarely. And when it is fatal, it's mostly with the elderly. And when someone catches COVID, it's not because someone with heinous intent is coming at them, coughing in Mm -hmm. their faces, throwing scalpels at them, trying to murder them like an abortionist is towards a, a baby human being. When we stand against abortion, what we're saying is that a mother has no God-given right to end the life of her unborn child. And to do so is murder. 
and the physician that's that's complicit in that is guilty of murder, and the staff that's complicit in that are guilty of murder. This is something we can't back down on as Christians, but COVID isn't a life or death scenario like abortion is, and nobody's intentionally passing COVID on to people that are especially vulnerable. Babies that are aborted, again, die 100% of the time. The COVID risk is minor compared to abortion. It's fragmentarily minor. It's microscopically minor. And again, we, we have the reference to you know 12,000 deaths in Ontario over two years out of a population of over 14 million. We've also had um, you know other diseases around that the government doesn't seem to be all that interested in thwarting. I mean, if you were, if it was, and I, and I, I want to be careful not to use analogies that are, uh, you know, to compare one thing to another thing when one is not as deadly as the other. But the reality is all of the arguments that we've heard about reducing ICU capacity and, you know, not, putting other people's lives at risk could be applied to something as simple as smoking that has a cat. There's zero health benefits to smoking Mm -hmm. zero. Whereas there is benefits to me continuing to go to work, even if by some small fragmentary chance, I get COVID and pass it on to someone else. There's, there's redemptive value in continuing to live in a world that's dangerous in a world where there's COVID, which is going to be a nasty virus, there's still lots of redemptive value attached to going out and living your life, even when COVID does kill some people. There's no redemptive value in smoking, but we still permit it. We still provide for these people in the hospitals. Nobody's running campaigns really slandering it. I mean, I know there's been anti-smoking campaigns, which don't seem to be around right now, but there's there's no coercion. There's no like, hey, you smoke, you're not allowed into our hospital, you're overwhelming it. Cancer, all the different lifestyle choices, the gay lifestyle, the the uh, uh, poor diets that people indulge in. These, these things that kill more people than COVID, nobody's really picking at people. You could smoke around your kid. I could just smoke like a chimney at home around my infants. Nobody's there knocking on my door. There's no public health officer knocking on my door. Mm-hmm. So, Right now, I think COVID's getting the attention because it's the thing in the news. And let's let's talk a little bit, again, let's go back to data a little bit. So one of the things that I presume that these MPPs would, I'm trying to remember if they've said it, they said it or not, but folks like this who are pro-compliance, they want people to be vaccinated, right? Well, I have opinions on the vaccine. I, th- I think I think the my my opinion, for what it's worth, is that for a lot of people, it seems to be fine, maybe even helpful for a period of time. For for a good cross section of the population, they probably shouldn't really be going near it because it's they're not really susceptible and there's side effects. My big problem is there's no liability to the to the pharmaceutical companies. A lot of people I'm finding don't know that that there's no liability to these vaccines, to the, to the company that's making money off of it. That's a problem. I have a problem with the fact the government f- refuses to recognize natural immunity for the first time, I think, in history, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a conscience issue of uh, association with different vaccines with fetal stem cell research, which is a theological issue. 
So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to question it. But in our church, we're not like you got to be vaxxed or you're not going to be vaxxed. I've said we're not going to split our church over this issue. Mm-hmm. But what we are going to do is we're going to give people permission to robustly dispute and debate on the issue. So, you know, have at it. You're having your buddies over have a debate about whether they should get vaxxed or not. Where people actually sin, where Christians sin, is when in their conscience they're being told not to take it and they go take it anyway because they want to keep their job or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I understand the practicalities, but that's actually wrong to violate your conscience and it will set you up for a, um, compromise and other issues uh, in the future. But the facts of the matter are, if you go to Windsor's website, the last time I checked it was April the 28th, and you look at the effects of these protocols in the area of forced vaccinations or recommended vaccinations on the population, um, you have a negligible difference between who's in hospital right now that are vaxxed, double vaxxed, and who who's not vaxxed. So for example, on the 28th, there were 34 vaxxed people in the Windsor Met Hospital, and there were seven that weren't vaxxed. That's pretty much the same ratio as the the ratio between the vax population and the unvax population. Uh, in the ICU, there were three people that were vaxed and zero that were unvaxed. So that's kind of uh, a point in favor of the unvaxed advocates. So the point is right now, and that can change because data changes, situations change, I get it. But right now, there is a slight benefit in favor of the unvax for not being in the hospital and not being in ICU. And yet that is one of these health protocols that these members of provincial parliament are promoting that we want everyone to be vaxxed. This is why Bauma was in favor of, as I understood him, if I understood him correctly, you can correct me if I'm wrong. He, he said something about, well, history is going to show whether this was a good idea or not, but he's, he seems to be in favor of, or at least not speaking out and resisting as part of government with forced forced or coerced vaccinations. And by the way, there's really no difference between forced and coerced. <laughs> yeah. I know they're not running up to you, grabbing your arm and sticking it in it, but when you create a culture where you can't go to work, mm-hmm. you're essentially, you can't travel, uh, you can't go into certain restaurants or businesses, you're essentially, quote unquote, softly forcing people to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And, and if the government denies that, then I would just say you're flat out liars. Mm-hmm. That's the implications of it. So- Here's an example of a protocol that at least in the moment at the Windsor Met Hospital isn't benefiting anybody. doesn't seem to make that much of a difference. If you compare vaxxed and unvaxxed members of the Ontario population and then vaxxed and unvaxxed members in the hospital, it doesn't really seem to be helping. doesn't really seem to be helping. So I, I get it. The governments need to put in general, general rules. I, I think they should have put in general rules for... Um, uh, Managing this pandemic, I think they should have uh, encouraged the sick to be quarantined. I think they should have put focused protection plans in place in the LTC. I think they should have informed people about how their choices affect mm-hmm. the the degree to which they might contract COVID-19 and then let people live their lives. But when you compare the extreme reactions to... Uh, a pandemic that doesn't even come close, not even remotely close to, let's say, the Spanish flu. It's pretty bad. One more comment, Chris. Mm-hmm. This idea that the laws weren't weren't enforced, so that weren't enforced equally. Mm-hmm. In fact, Oosterhof and Bauma's 
party leader, the premier of Ontario, Douglas Ford, actually rewrote the law, the reopening Ontario Act, to permit himself to go to that Islamic funeral with that tragic killing last year. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that from an equitable perspective? How do you explain that from a, a pro-life perspective? How do you explain that from a uh, six commandment perspective? And how do you explain that from a pastoral perspective when thousands and thousands of families mm-hmm. were not able to attend the funerals of their loved ones, mm-hmm. but Doug Ford was allowed to to attend the funeral of an, a complete stranger because it was politically apropos. Mm-hmm. So these are all factors that concern me. There's a, a convergence of numerous overlapping issues that are, that are all part of the, the degradation of trust between the public and the government, the hypocrisy, the, the overreach, and the exaggeration of what's actually going on in the public realm. Mm-hmm. That concern us absolutely in their now in their interview um as they were speaking they referenced the government authority to bear the sword to carry the sword uh, and so maybe you could speak to what your impression was of their use of romans 13 well i believe in romans 13 it's in the bible i believe in the authority and inerrancy of scripture but romans 13 doesn't give the state comprehensive authority over the life and ministry of the church or over the population. It, it, they bear the sword to punish the evildoer and to reward the righteous. They're stretching that a little bit to say, well, it's to protect life in general. Well, I have a little bit of an issue with that because it still seems very selective. It's very, the government's attempt to protect life is very, very, very selective. I know abortion is a federal issue, but the PCs haven't done a lot to uh, protect that life. They haven't chastised people, like I said before, for overeating, for smoking, for um, they're not penalizing. Why are they, why are they finding these opioid addicts that end up in the hospital? You know, they're putting their own lives at risk. They're putting other people's lives at risk. They're not speaking out against these issues. It's all about COVID-19, 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 because they know that the way they handle this has a lot to do with, the future of who governs Ontario, but uh, you know, without getting you know into too much of that, you have to look at Romans thirteen in light of Romans fourteen, mm-hmm. which in disputable issues that which he uh, that which is not done in faith is sin. So you're saying, okay, well, we we have the the sword, so we have the authority granted to us by God to coerce, punish those of you that may put other people's lives at risk. But what we're not going to do is we're not going to uphold Romans 14, which says, no, I as an individual have the right to choose. And I feel very, very uncomfortable with church lockdowns. I feel very, very, very uncomfortable with taking experimental jabs. I feel very, very, very uncomfortable with being told that I can't travel and I should be okay with that. I feel very uncomfortable with these things. It, it violates my conscience. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to, uh, we're trying to honor both Romans 13 and Romans 14. Mm-hmm. We're trying to honor the government and say, look, the government, the state, the leaders have a vested interest in punishing evil and rewarding the righteous, which they're terrible at doing by the way. And at the same time, we want to vi- we we want to al- ask you to uphold conscientious rights. 
especially you know over God-given right issues. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about my liberty to drive my car whatever speed I want down the highway or my liberty to obey or disobey the fire code. It's about rights that have been given to me by God that the state should should actually champion and protect. Mm-hmm. The state doesn't decide whether I can work or not. God tells me to creationally work six days, rest in the seventh. I want you to protect it. Not, not, it's not that the state has a responsibility to decide if that's a good idea or not. The state has a responsibility to uphold divine law. So that would be my, um, you know, my response to that question. Yes. When, when we were chatting just before the show here, um, I was commenting, it seems to me when they break down Romans 13, essentially we're saying government locking down church is outside the purview or outside the job description of the state. They're saying it's inside the job description of the state within that their their, uh, God-given responsibilities. But then also, you know, it talks about the government's role to bear the sword, to punish the evildoer, to reward the good. It seems like they would be saying essentially... The lockdowns are good and we're saying the lockdowns are evil. So there's like these multiple points of disagreement um, that we're really coming to. Well, we all have a responsibility to protect life. The Heidelberg Catechism is correct in that regard. Mm -hmm. And the sixth commandment forbids the intentional unlawful taking of human life. It's not just the state's job to champion that. That's every conscientious believer's job to champion that. But the application of that mm-hmm. is is called into question. The application of that is called into question. Again, if these two gentlemen or Mr. Ford or other leaders in other jurisdictions, because the, the situation we're focusing on in this podcast is about is about Ontario, mm-hmm. but in principle it applies everywhere. Yep. All the all the provinces, yep. all the states. So we we want to be clear, we're not we're not out there trying to destroy people's lives. We've seen Actually, as a result of, if you want to just talk about fruit, we have seen all kinds of lives rescued as a result of our stance. All mm-hmm. kinds of them. We've had more ministry opportunities than you could shake a stick at. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been able to speak to thousands of people that we otherwise wouldn't have an audience with. So if you want to look at the, the upside and the downside of our choices, we win hands down. Mm-hmm. Hands down. It's not even a, a comparison. When, when we buried one person in a church of 12 to 1,600 last year, and we saw, who, I can't even remember, all kinds of people profess faith in mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, people we, that we would not have otherwise seen at our and door. And they've told us that. They wouldn't have been 100%. here if it wasn't for this. I, we had a guy, quick story, we had a guy in church a couple, well, he's, he's here every week now, but I was talking to him, and he says, I was actually, you know, in despair because everything was going on and I, I had a surgery scheduled and I had to lose some weight for it. So I was literally walking by our church and I saw all these people there and I said, these are, this is my tribe. And he came in and he's worshiping with us now. Mm-hmm. Story after story of, of um, that, but we're still looking for the, the mass deaths. I mean, I've told you this before. It could be a little off because I'm sure there's others, but um, I think I would personally know at least a couple tens of thousands of people in Ontario. And I think I've heard of or been made aware of about four four or five deaths from or with COVID, Mm. right? So those five people precious? Of course, who's going to deny that? 
don't put words in my mouth. I think they're very precious people. But if you're looking at the data, when here's, here's from a Christian perspective, Chris, like if we, let's say we had 50 people as a direct result of our actions die from COVID-19 in our church and 100 people saved and come to faith in Jesus Christ, that would still be a win. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, I'm not trying to treat people like numbers. I don't, I don't like that. That's why I don't really like the data that much. It becomes utilitarian, data. right? Yeah. But the reality is there's been much fruit born. Interestingly, there's been, this doesn't necessarily prove anything, but there's been much fruit born from churches that have stayed open. Very little from what I understand from churches that have complied and the pro compliance narrative fits the mainstream media narrative mm-hmm. and the woke ideology, which you should at least start to question if you're a pro-compliance. How come it is that you sound a lot like CBC? Mm-hmm. How come it is that you sound a lot like Justin Trudeau? How, how come that is? Because there's an, there's, there are ideologies knowingly or unknowingly behind the decisions that we make. One of the, one of the, the flaws in the worldview that I picked up on in, in the podcast is this incessant focus on protecting your biotic health at all costs. I think that's incompatible with the Easter story. And I think as Christians, we need to think beyond that. We need to think about when we make decisions as a government, what are the implications for that on people economically, spiritually, socially, et cetera. And I can't think of any good implications, but I can think of lots of good implications of giving people their God-given freedoms to function within the boundaries of God's law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. And I think too about the uh, the cost of doing ministry. Frankly, in the last you know decade or so, we've seen many, many people not embrace a cost to do ministry. Uh, and that's why they wouldn't embrace a cost of the fam- possible rejection of family or, you know, the possibility of missing out on a family vacation to go to church or I don't know what it would be. Right. But you just think about people have given their lives, literally given their lives, given away so much in order to do ministry. And yet it was so easy for many to, um, to play it safe. So there was no cost to doing ministry. So just something to think about. You know, one of the thing I wanted to address is reductionism. I've already brought this up a little bit, but reductionism apply to this situation is where you just look at the data and you again reduce human health and well-being down to their biotic health. And I do I do not believe that these gentlemen mean that, but I think it's an implication of the decisions they've made and been part of in that when when you focus on um, biotic health, so you're like we we church can wait, um, work can wait worship can wait, et cetera, because we have to protect people's lives. That comes through in, in that juxtaposition between, you know, life or liberty. We can, we can give you one back, but not the other. We just got to keep you alive. That's the, that's the main, the main role of government is to keep you alive, to wield the sword, to protect life. Actually, that's not the only job of government or shouldn't be the only interests of the government. It's certainly not our only interest. This is reductionistic. It's it's a little bit Darwinian, I would say. I'm not trying to be offensive, but it's a bit Darwinian where it's like at all costs, we have to stay alive. Says who? Says who? Life is filled with risk and reward. And I would rather, as many early Christians did, run back in the city where the pandemic or the plague is wreaking havoc to minister to people because I know 
that biotic health is not the be all and end all. And I know that Mr. Bauma and Mr. Oosterhof would believe that, but I think many in government today, they don't think that way. They think like Darwinians. At the end of the day, this is all the life we have. And at all costs, we have to protect physical health. And and I think that's that's uh, wrongheaded. We have to protect physical health, but we have to balance it with our spiritual obligations and with spiritual health. So I'm there's no footnote in the Bible that says, um, uh, you know, you need, don't forsake the gathering together. Believers some are in the habit of doing, but you can do so for two years if there's a pandemic. I'm not trying to be overly simplistic, but the it's just not there. Like I feel obliged to be with God's people. I need to be with God's people. Can I be away for two weeks and survive? Yes. Two years? No. Two years is a long time. It's one thirty-fifth of our li- lifespans, and so the the imbalance here is is what has bothered me a lot. Where there's there's re- rolling lockdowns in Toronto, they were effectively locked down for close to six months. Mm-hmm. That would have been, I think, the December before last and into January and the spring and whatnot. So that's just something for us to consider. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the big difference between between their view and our view is that while the pandemic is real, it's exaggerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, while some protocols help, and I'm in favor of a targeted protection plan for the vulnerable, and I am in favor of quarantine, I think the response has been extreme and I mean extremely bad and has brought a lot of damage and division, not only within the church. I also believe in the sovereignty of God as the one MPP mentioned. I I do believe in that, but that cuts both ways. I trust in God over life and I trust in God over death. Mm -hmm. If if tomorrow I died of COVID-19, I would regret none of the decisions I've made so far. It's been worth every one. Um, because God has done an amazing work. He's, he's shown people their vulnerability, their susceptibility. He's, he's, um, made it clear that every government is infected by false ideologies and they shouldn't fully trust the government. Um, so those are just some, Mm -hmm. some, some thoughts I had, um, Chris, I think it's it's reductionistic to 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 focus all of our energy just on physical health, but that's what the world wants. So even you know members of government that are Christians, they, it's easy for them to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So hey, quick, good question. If this were to happen again, what would you like to see done differently? I'd like to see the government come and have a conversation with us, maybe make some suggestions, but not mandate anything that would stand in the way of our divine obligations. I, I think the government made a mistake in not calling upon a cross-disciplinary team of experts. They just called upon the medical experts when this is more than a medical issue. Uh, they should have called historians, economists, clergy together, a cross-panel of quote-unquote professionals or experts to, to try to come up with a more balanced approach. I think this approach is incredibly imbalanced. Mm-hmm. I mean, we even get blamed because of the terrible hospital system we have in Ontario. How is that our fault? Why should I close my church because you didn't build enough ICU beds? Or why did I? Why should I close my church because you can't deliver medical supplies on time or, or whatnot? So there, there needs to be a more balanced approach. I think the government's also made a massive error in not speaking with protesters even in this podcast, uh, Mr. Bauma sort of denigrates them, speaks very negatively of Ottawa. I don't know if he was there or not, but I was there. It was great. Mm-hmm. And uh, Toronto. So, 
that kind of rhetoric where you're framing up protesters as bad people as bad governance. That's, it's not even acceptable. The reason why people protest is because they don't think you're listening and they want you to listen. When you continue not to listen, you're just asking for more protests. Mm-hmm. You're asking for more civil disobedience. You're not making friends, you know, winning and influencing people. I think they should penalize the lying media. Uh, the media has been responsible for so many lies and so many exaggerations and half-truths. I know I've been exposed to that myself in media interviews where they've literally taken what I've said and put a spin on it. It's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. The name-calling that they've participated in needs to end. The hypocrisy. If Doug Ford is actually a um, man of integrity, he should go char- have himself charged for violating the, the ROA. Mm-hmm and or dismiss my charges and the charges of others. And these two MPs should, MPPs should be advocating for that. If they're true men of justice and conviction, mm-hmm. why is it that you're okay with many of your colleagues breaking the Reopening Ontario Act with immunity? Even down here in Windsor, I'll mention it again, the chief of police, the mayor. Why is it that you're okay with that? Mm-hmm. But you've been part of a government that's been complicit in charging pastors for simply opening their church to minister to people with fines that exceed most fines you'd get for almost any minor crime you committed in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a problem. And I would I would encourage them, quarantine the sick and focus on the LTC issue, the long-term care issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, the final question before we go. How about the issue of compliance as a Christian witness? We've talked about this on the show before, but uh, I think... Um, well, I think both Bauma and Osterhoff mentioned this as a, as a reason they were saying, you know, you get such a bad rap as an evangelical Christian, uh, speak to the Christian witness. Well, I'm not sure what circles you're running in, but no matter what you do as a Christian, whether you speak out against abortion or you speak out against the radical gay agenda, or you speak out against universal income, or you speak out against whatever leftist ideology it doesn't matter what you speak out against. People are going to dislike you provincially, municipally, federally. People are going to dislike you. The Bible says, beware when all men speak well of you. If you're going to speak truth, you're going to have enemies. That's mm-hmm. the reality of it. We don't spend our time you know, losing sleep over it. So in terms of Christian witness, I'm not sure who you're talking to, but let me just say this very practically. How many people have come to your church, if you're a compliant church, and said, you know what, what really drew me here, the reason why I want to worship with you people is because you complied. What an incredible witness that has been to me. Mm -hmm. I bet you zero. I bet you zero. But we've had all kinds of people come because they see our witness as bold, courageous, and confronting the lies and half-truths that we've experienced. So again, a growing church doesn't necessarily mean it's a healthy church. But a healthy church generally is going to be a growing church unless you're in a community of five people and you've already reached all five. Mm-hmm. But as you be, remain faithful to the Lord, you, you can expect or anticipate, maybe is a better word, spiritual fruit. And the churches that have pushed back are experiencing spiritual fruit. And the ones that haven't are struggling. I would say more than the vast majority of them are struggling. So I'm not sure what you're talking about when it comes to a Christian witness. Uh, we've seen lots of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Marriage is restored. Have we seen some people leave? Yeah, they don't seem to be doing very well. They don't seem to be doing very well from what we've heard. Um, So I just think that's patently false. Faithful witness, by the way, is not defined by a pat in the back from a lost person. Mm -hmm. Faithful witness is being obedient to what God has said without fail as consistently as you can and repenting when you do fail and letting God do the work that he wants to do. 
So again, a faithful witness is not being applauded by godless men that don't even love your God. Mm-hmm. A faithful witness is when you're seeing the people of God encouraged, which we've seen, and seeing spiritual fruit, real spiritual fruit. I understand there's frustration between our side and the side that these two men represent. And there's frustration back and forth. We have strong opinions. I, I think that Christians that have complied have actually continued to comply have sinned and need to repent. They've set aside divine decrees, divine law. They haven't seen the big picture. They've they've contributed to a statist government. I'll continue to say that. Do I mean to say that they're spiritually lost? No. I mean, maybe some of them are. I don't know. But, uh, and they, they would draw moral judgments about our decisions as well. Thinking of it as a bad witness or maybe alluding to the fact that it's, you know, it's not fully trusting in the sovereignty of God. I get it. I get, I get, I understand the rhetoric on both sides. Mm-hmm. But if we simply go to scripture, there's nowhere in scripture that defines faithful witness as getting a pat in the back from a Pharisee mm-hmm. or getting a pat in the back from, a Samaritan, unless those people are in the process of repenting and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So I think we need to be a better witness. I think if this were to happen again, uh, the the church across Canada should say, no, we're going to put basic protocols in place. We're willing to have a conversation, want to target the, the vulnerable, but we're not carte blanche closing down our churches and we're not carte blanche permitting you to force vaccinations on people in order to work. And we're not going to step outside of our God-given spheres of authority and try to dictate and rule every single decision that you make. Um, so lots of lots of great things. At the at the end of the day, I'm not. I don't I don't know if these men will listen to this podcast. I I doubt they're going to change their mind. You know, everyone's kind of pretty invested in this. I doubt they're going to change their mind. And my you know my intention is not to denigrate actually i'm not by nature a mean person i'm bold but i'm not mean and my intention is not to to drive a wedge but my intention is to combat the words that were said on that podcast which i think contribute to an unhealthy narrative in a lot of christian churches and um you know to bring clarity and to also reinforce uh, a a way f- a way to assess the past and to work forward that I think is healthy, robustly biblical common sense, and ultimately will bear fruit to the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And I think all this conversation is going to play into the way people vote in the upcoming election here in Ontario. Of course. Right. The, uh, the writ has officially dropped. And so the uh, election campaign is going to go on and it will be a time for people. And I'll just say this, I'll say, this is going to ruffle some feathers, but I'll say it again. I, I don't care what party it is. I refuse to vote and moving forward, I refuse to vote for any elected politician who is complicit in this mess and of a lockdown of churches. I refuse to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, there's some good candidates that will be running in various parties, but I refuse on principle to vote for any person who was complicit in this and has not yet repented of their participation in these lockdowns and the destruction and the affront to Christ church that I believe they have caused. Mm-hmm. And that's why this podcast is so important because it helps you to not let the past be reframed so that the same kind of people that made the same kind of decisions end up in power. So anyways, lots to think about. Thanks for sticking around for an extra special lengthy edition of the Leadership Now podcast. You can find us over on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network along with a bunch of other great podcasts there. Things like the Ezra Institute's podcast for cultural reformation and the Rebel Network. 
as well as a host of other American uh, podcasts, American content podcasts. You can also find us on the CJXC Radio, Canada's constant Christian companion, uh, 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and 11 p.m. on Thursdays. So make sure to check that out and tune in next week for another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roth.